Every existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity, feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speaks podcast. I'm Jason James, executive producer of the show. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information from some of the nation's top doctors. I'm joined now by our host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a medical reporter and a past president of the National Medical Association. All right, so let's turn now to our guest, Beverly Kyer. Ms. Kyer, we're going to give you all the time that you need, so uh, don't, don't worry about the clock. It's unique for me uh, as a physician who's been in, you know, in this for a long time to hear a term that I knew existed somewhere but couldn't put in context. So let's start with a, a couple of issues. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, your own journey through compassion fatigue. And- well, first of all, thank you, Dr. Lenore and um, Mr. Dean, for letting me have this opportunity to speak to the communities at large about this subject. It's important to me. I want to tell you first about why I became important. Um, well, as I said, I, I did some work. I, I seem to have been called, like many of you, to work with people who are really struggling with um, crisis, challenges, uh, chaos, and a lot of victimization. I had witnessed a lot of horror, but I knew I was able to add a measure of comfort to help. And so I felt very passionate, very purpose. I really wanted to get to work and do the work. And under that kind of lens that I had, no one ever told us that we was, it was going to give us. It's going to knock you to the knees, knock the wind out of it out of you. And on occasion when I could feel myself really struggling, my cognition got in trouble, my memory got in trouble, my focus got in trouble, my mood, my stuff got in trouble. Matter of fact, I used to come home to my kids and they came running to the door to hug me and I wanted them to get away. And my poor husband, he was to move fast enough. All that stuff was happening to me too, because I did not know. I did not know. I thought something was wrong with me. I even considered leaving the work because I thought it. But then I met uh, Brian Post. Y'all need to meet him one day. He talked to me about compassion fatigue, and that just like you, Mr. Dean, it opened up my eyes. But by then, I had so damaged my health that I still went down. I still went down, and then I went down a second time. It does not make that difference. It just reacts in our bodies, and so we are subject to many of the same symptoms that they have. Since compassion fatigue is so difficult to define, describe the symptoms. Confusion and feeling hopeless or feeling helpless. Uh, extreme kind of mood swings, feeling out of order, avoiding issues, uh, behavioral changes that are dram- absolutely dramatic, absolutely dramatic, that can wreck the household, episodes of fear, losses of uh, sleep, all kinds of reports of that nature, and many, many more. That's what the veteran experiences, and that's what we experience as service providers. Now, it is really related to your work, your professional life, your role, whatever it is, I've been working with, in child wel- with child welfare agencies and adult protective service agencies and immigration and trafficking and uh, attorneys and, and, and uh, probation workers, all kinds of people in the field and family caregivers. I don't want to leave them out because people who are taking care of other people, still I want to say that they really count the cost to themselves and caregivers have been known to get sicker than the people they were taking care of. Whether you're taking care of a family member who's sick, your parents, your children, your spouse, your partners, 
there, there may be substance in the house issues or mental health issues. It is a toll on the physicality and the neurology of the person providing the service. So that's your role, but it's also your personal life as well as your professional life that can take you down with compassion fatigue. Now, how this relates also, and it's more expanded with the people in the African-American community that are underneath all of that, in the midst of all of that, is the issues, as you mentioned before, of racism and oppression. It's almost like this, um, whatever degree that we are exposed to racism or aware of racism or having those kinds of uh, uh, issues, uh, incidents that happens to us, it could be a normalized, kind of internalized, pervasive feeling that it's always there, there's always some fear, there's always some concern, there's always some threat. Uh, it shows up on your job. It definitely shows up in the healthcare system if you're not with the right people. It shows up in your relationships, in your communities, in your churches. It shows up everywhere. So this significantly compounds compassion fatigue. It exacerbates all of the factors of compassion fatigue. This is the accumulative effect, which results in something we like to call toxic stress syndrome. And that's when we can really get sick. You know, a lot of people have experienced, are experiencing this who are listening to us who don't really know uh, what, they're, what they're going through. Uh, I can tell you almost every one of us who has family with elder, older relatives, and I, I say elderly because I might kind of be in that group, but are taking care of older relatives or taking care of people, our mother, our father. I mean, and, and, and it, I've never seen the kind of tension that puts on people. Uh, and so when you talk about passion fatigue, I think you're putting a name on something that so many people, regardless of whether they're lay people, taking care of parents or professional people, and even recently doctors are starting to recognize that they, they have that. And you recognize this. Well, actually, most people think of the symptoms of passion fatigue in terms of all the physicalities, and I'll get to that in a moment. But in truth, there's six impact areas. And those six impact areas are cognition, uh, behavior, your emotions, your interpersonal relationships, your spiritual belief systems, and the physical things. Now, when you look at cognition, you're talking about this periods of confusion and rigidity and self-doubt and uh, spaciness, even trauma imagery where you have flashbacks. Doctors can have and nurses can have flashbacks of somebody who was suffering and died, and it just kind of shows up while you're sitting at a cookout or a birthday party. Uh, any emotions, you know, the anxiety and the, the emotional roller coaster, the fear, the depression. What I want to say about depression, we could all, and I think all of us have some degree of a depressed state, not handled to become an actual clinical depression. Uh, survivor's guilt, big time. I was so concerned and in pain about the people, the doctors and nurses and the respiration, the respiratory people, therapists, all of you people working out there under uh, that COVID situation, particularly when those, New York, you're in New York where I, that's my home, became an epicenter. This thing, the greed, the amount of the devastation, the losses of death, people just, they came apart. They kind of take on some kind of guilt that you couldn't do enough, but you could never do enough to save lives. That's what you went into the profession to do. That injures people significantly. Uh, anger, rage, numbness in their behavioral things, it changes your life. It just changes you. Like you can have nightmares. Many of us, me included, eating disorders. I try to eat the top of the desk when I get really, really distressed. Most, many of us do that. Moodiness, clinginess. Uh, uh. Here's another thing. 
hypervigilance and startle alert. Because we know the awful things that could happen to people, we stay ramped up anticipating the next thing that happens. Think about that and all the issues that's going on. Again, that points back to the racism. It's uh, that kind of underlying pervasive fear that something is going to happen. Somebody's not going to make it back home. Does that make sense to you? That's part of the behavioral issue. Sleeping disorders, negative coping, it could be alcoholism, it could be uh, eating, you, you name it. You name it. We have negative coping skills, uh, 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 mechanisms. I want to say that basically in the Western culture, most of us, there's a few people who don't eat. I don't know them and I don't want to talk to them. But in the Western society, we consume when we're upset and distressed. In the spiritual realm, we begin to question God. How in the world can this happen? You begin to doubt your sense of purpose. And you don't know what's causing the struggle. We tend to take it on as a personal flaw. You think it's you, but no, it was a chemical reaction going on in your body. In the interpersonal realm, our relationships, they fracture, they can be overprotective, too controlling, mistrust can kick in, our intimate issues kind of fade away, and it has nothing to do with losing love and affection for your partners, whoever they are, or your children. And then let's talk about the physical, because that's what you asked about. The physical diseases with toxic stress syndrome, they're major. You deal with them all the time, but understand that the stress related, the diabetes, as you said, heart conditions, heart failure is high. People with compassion fatigue, uh, uh, chronic respiratory diseases, neovascular diseases, you say, kidney diseases, strokes. We always talked about strokes in the past, but there's so much more about that. Uh, we were accident prone. I could walk through my door that I've been living in this house for 20 years. And when I'm stressed, it looks like the door jam moves over and knocks me over. And I fall up the stairs in my house as opposed to down the street. <laughs> we have accidents on the road. And you know how you're walking across the street and trip. And there's a high, high incident of suicidal ideation and suicidal actualization. I know you see it all the time. These are some. I just mentioned to you, I think. You correct me, nine out of the 10 leading causes of death related to stress, related to compassion fatigue, unchecked. unchecked. Well, I, we, we do have one question that just came in from uh, Lauren. I'll put it on screen here. And basically, I, I think um, the impetus of this question is, yeah, you, you're talking about people that are working in helping professions, but she's asking, can a mom experience compassion? All day long, all day long. And, and let, let me, this. can I go into another area that you may not have asked me about that? I began my work with family caregivers. I began my work with mothers and fathers and uncles and aunts and grandparents, especially who were dealing with children who had adverse childhood experiences, had trauma experiences, and children would be sick. The mothers in the hospital when I was the social worker in a pediatric oncology unit, I did more counseling to hold them together than I did to hold the kids. Does that make sense? Yes, you can, because it's constantly there. When you're in a situation where there's trouble and struggles, challenges, illnesses, behaviors, behaviors, and did I say behaviors? It's chronic, it's cumulative. Your chemical reaction in your body, your stress level goes to the ceiling, it just continues on. Now, let me add something else to mothers in the African-American community, and you know me, I'm heading to this. Every time your child walks out the door, especially your sons, are they going to come? I've got a 13-year-old son, 
And I, I think about that every time something happens on, on, on the news and we see another shooting, it, it's that shared experience that I know he's getting older, he's getting larger, and the older and larger Black men get, the more dangerous America sees them. And so I worry about that every single day that he goes out of this house. And, yeah. and what, what you do with each part of our conversation is you gather more and more people starting to recognize that they're in this group. That they're yes. starting to recognize that they, maybe I was on the fringe because I'm taking care of my mom. Or maybe I'm in the middle of it because I'm working in, in a, a rest home. We often talk about the pandemic as it started with the, uh, with the real first responders, with the black people who worked in these places and had no idea that this virus was hanging around and then saw their comrades die. So every time you mention some of these symptoms, it gathers more and more of us into a situation where, uh, where we really don't know or understand or appreciate the stress that it puts on us. Compassion fatigue has wrecked the health of millions before COVID-19. I just said that it was on top of it. It compounded the situation in a major, major way. And when this is not going to be over anytime soon, but it will be with us forever, unless we know and we we are aware of it and we do the work to mitigate the effect. And I, we got to talk about that because you can. I wonder if when you have, uh, when you recognize you have passion fatigue, are there different techniques that you use for different circumstances? Does one size fit all in that situation? There's some very, very basic sameness in the way it can, it, 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 it's going to attack the body. It's a given that if you do the work that you do in all of the other groups, parents that I mentioned, you're going to have compassion fatigue. As a matter of fact, the father of compassion, I like to call him the father, but the gentleman who, the doctor who constructed the construct, he said, uh, the very qualities of caring and compassion and empathy that allow you to do the work put you in a direct path of compassion fatigue. There's no avoiding it. There's no avoiding it. He says, but then if you understand it as a predictable outcome of your service and caregiving, then what is predictable is preventable. In other words, you know about it. This knowledge that we're putting out today, that we can say to people, okay, it's going to come. So what do you do? You do everything you can every day, every week to mitigate the effects, to reduce the effects, to lessen the intensity of the stress. See, stress is going to be with us forever, Dr. Lenore. You know that. I'm not telling you anything new. So it just piles up. It's cute. It just stacks. It is one on top of the other because we, and particularly in our community, we don't stop. We push. Things get worse. We dig even deeper. Yeah. So we want to learn how not to do that, to do something to stop, several things to stop and re-regulate our central nervous system, to calm ourselves, to decompress ourselves, to unconstrict ourselves so our bodies could maintain some level of coherence so that we could avoid some of the sicknesses that we have. We could offset a lot of that stuff. Lots of techniques, lots of techniques. And um, some of those, incidentally, I'm building an online community. That's not a community, but it's uh, um, a campus for all of us, all of us in the fields to come and kind of push button and do learn some of these techniques and strategies. Some of those are traditional techniques that we know about and some of them are more of the ancestrals. Obviously things like meditation and calmness and walking and stretching kinds of self-care habits like that, uh, tense to relax, the tapping, the EFT, uh, the chimes, prayer. It's a really, really important thing to do. Um, uh, there, there's some other things I do like visualization and I'm a real, real strong advocate of uh, mindfulness 
exercises and practices just to calm. And actually, we could teach people and they could teach the members of their household how to do the things just to calm, soothe the nerves and re-regulate the body. And I want to emphasize that. It's a chemical reaction that goes off instantly with any stressor. It goes to certain places. One of the places it goes down and knocks out our capacity, I shouldn't say knocks out, it hijacks our capacity to think critically, rationally, problem solve, short-term memory. That sends a communication to another part of the brain, how we feel, how we think, and ultimately how we're going to behave, which usually will kind of put us in a reactive kind of state as opposed, as opposed to being more reflective. At the same time, that chemical goes down the neurocircuitry into what a gut reaction, the body gets constricted, and when it gets constricted and gets tightened, all of our systems, every system and organ gets compromised in the body. Yet, what you ask, there are techniques and strategies to unconstrict, get some flow, so things will begin to work well in the body as well as they can until you have time to do something more substantial. One of the most in immediate and available things to do is a deep, deep, uh, rhythmic kind of breath to allow enough nitric oxide back into the capillary so they can expand and you can kind of get some more blood flow going. But there's lots of techniques and I, that's in the book, but um, there's also going to be on that campus and I talk about those on my broadcast. I'll just stay in touch and I hope you come back on yours and teach some more. But that's yes. some of the well, I, I'm going to say this: uh, the our our audience right now is loving you. Uh, the guest is Beverly Kyer. The book is Surviving Compassion Fatigue. I have put the link in, in the comment section, uh, the Amazon link. And so, uh, please, 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 if you are enjoying, if you are enjoying what you're hearing tonight, and and by your comments, I know that you are, because I know I am. I know I'm getting some of it. When you listed those symptoms earlier, I was like, I got a, the whole list of the symptoms from the drinking to the intimacy to the to the hypervigilance to all of those things that you just described my daily life. And so I've got to do a better job. So I'm going to download that book. I'm going to get the book myself and read it. And I, I encourage everybody to go do it. It's Surviving Compassion Fatigue. And so... Please, please, please go get that book. I, don't, I, I want to hear some more. We, we got to get some more, but I wanted to make sure that we let people know how they can get your book, what the name of your book is, and they can get it so they can find out what's going on with them, what's, what's, what's happening with us. And I didn't know. I just I knew something was wrong, something was off, and you hit the nail on the head. So please, please keep sharing with our audience. Man, I think it was good he stopped to let people know need more. But tell us uh, some of the other techniques that we can use. Um, I didn't kind of deal with this once it's recognized. Well, the techniques are important in this way. There's a whole lot of tools for the road, but one of the things that's really, there's a number of things that's really important is that we need to learn as a people to talk and process and integrate what is happening to us as opposed to holding that in, stuffing it in and letting it fester. That is critical to do. And there's, I have like my three R's. I want us to learn to release, let it out, get it off your chest, and got be no long drawn out thing. Techniques. In addition to that, there's things like arts and craft and playing and mindfulness and journaling, uh, creative kind of writing, listening to music, putting your hands in clay, putting your hands in soil. But the body things, it tends to relax the, the, the body movement, even things like dance, is as powerful to release and to get the chemical under control. I'm this too, if you, you allow me, if you have a little bit more time. There's two clinical terms for compassion fatigue. And when I'm talking to you about talking about it, I want, first of all, for us to ask for help 
And I want us to often help when we see our colleagues, our friends, our neighbors in trouble. And this goes two ways. It's important to know what they're struggling with. The clinical terms for compassion fatigue are secondary trauma and vicarious trauma, and they manifest different. different. The secondary trauma is when you get input, you hear news, you see news on the TV related to something awful that is happening to somebody else, something in the community, something across the nation, like a mass shooting, a kidnapping, a police shoot, another shoot, domestic violence, other all the COVID deaths. Whatever you hear and get that input, we feel something. We feel pain, grief, outrage, horrified, anger. In behalf of somebody else, that's it. You slip into compassion fatigue. Also, the vicarious traumatization has a more cognitive nature in that we are so exposed to the horrors, the the unfairness, the oppression, the 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 the, the murders, the harm to people, the sicknesses to people, the unfairness to people, the cruelties to people, and that exposure we absorb it. And that's part of what keeps us so alert and so ramped up. The unfortunate thing about anybody related to oppression, there's a part of you that's always hypervigilant, startle alert, startle response. And that chemical reaction is making us sick. We have to learn to code switch, get into right brain activities. The left brain, your logic, your reason, your rationalization, oral expressive language, that's important for us. But that's not the sole way to operate. And I want to say that to some of my doctor friends and nurses because you, you stay kind of like in that clinical arena. But sometimes you need to, because you're, you, you know, and you're struggling to save somebody's life. But to stay in that mode of struggling, trying to make sense out of what don't make no doggone sense, that kind of puts you in a place. Cold switch as often as you can to right brain activities, which is a different set of chemistry like um, serotonin and endorphins and dopamines that lift you, lets you see possibilities, you hope. That's the, the, the part of you that has a appreciation for color, for art, for music, for beauty, for form, uh, 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 intuition and imagination. We need to do that. That also is an enormous help to the human body, the human spirit, uh, the human mind. We, have a question. we do have a question. We have a question here from the audience. This is from uh, from Lauren, and she's asking, "How do I recognize when my spouse is experiencing compassion fatigue, and what should I do?" It depends on what your your spouse is doing, but I gotta say, no matter how difficult it is to notice it, don't tell him what it is. Don't tell her what it is. Say, "I noticed something." And I see you, I sense you, I feel in my heart that you're struggling. I just want you to know that you could talk to me about anything. Don't try to defend anything. Don't try to qualify anything. Because many of us still, we have a hard time. And especially if it's men and sometimes firstborn daughters, we don't, they don't wish to acknowledge a vulnerability. But encourage them, talk to me and say to them that being vulnerable, if that's the case, that's not a weakness. It is wise to acknowledge that you're a powerful, strong, dynamic person in bodies and minds that can be fractured and injured by all your face. Just acknowledge what they're doing. Acknowledge that you appreciate that they're trying and you realize and you can see that it's hurting, it's pulling on them. Sometimes it's asked, what well, it came up for you? And then be quiet and give them the time to decide if they want to answer. But keep the door open for them to talk and say, if you don't want to talk to me, you can talk to so-and-so, you can talk to so-and-so, you whatever the case is, but encourage them to open up. See, we lost 57,000 veterans who came home from that war and was quiet, didn't say anything, and it killed them. That still happens in our communities today. Encourage them to open up and make it safe for them to do it without judgment. 
I hope that helps. And great. If you're just joining us, uh, yes, I'm, I'm answering people in the comment section. This uh, this show, this broadcast is going to be available across the networks on the African American Wellness Project. Uh, it's going to be a podcast on, on Black Doctor Speak. It is also going to be housed on the blackdoctor.org Facebook page, as well as the blackdoctor.org YouTube channel. So you can just click that YouTube link and share it with your friends and family if you want to get them this information. This is wonderful, but make sure that this broadcast is, is, is 45 minutes, an hour long but you need to get the book because the book is going to give you the information that you can go back and reference. And that is overcoming compassion for TA. It's survival compassion for I'm TA. Sorry. And I dropped the price to about half price. It's on Amazon, Surviving Compassion Fatigue. Help for those who help others. Yes. But since I've been doing that work um, um, and I built this company, I started working with family caregivers. I want you to know that mothers and fathers and uncles and aunts and grandparents taking care of family members and community members. And uh, I really was making a target to get to people in the professions who are doing the help, including your folks there. I uh, did some marketing to do that, but once it was showing that it was saving staff, reducing staff turnover, staff sickness, workman compensation issues, staff conflicts, mood disorders, low morale, and all that, the apathy on the job, the withdrawal, the, lo the loss of confidence in even doing your job, the people said, get this woman, get this woman, get this information from somebody to help us understand what's happening to our people because we can create the kind of work environments and, and you can do that at your home too, that um, encourages courses, uh, 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 wellness, uh, self-care habits, self-care practices that you do consistently. And it's another thing about our African-American community. We do not practice consistent self-care, but that's part of the learning to understand that you could do that. And when those agencies began to do it, my work just blew up. It just grew. Um, and after COVID-19, it doubled. Um, so th that's, that's what happened. But there's basically no agency of service provider that I don't work with at this point. They're getting it. They're getting it and it's making a difference and I'm still trying to reach out to more. As a matter of fact, during the height of the uh, epicenter experience in New York City, I was reaching out to nurses and doctors who were at the bedside of those, that massive loss of life. We step away and I'm telling you to do this sometimes too. And I know the work would be kind of chronic and it just keeps coming and coming and coming, but it's good to step away from the bed, maybe walk to the hall, walk to the steps, walk the ghost, hide in the bathroom for a minute and spend 120 seconds, two minutes, three minutes to breathe and decompress. Maybe to cry, scream and cuss for a moment, but to step away and dysregulate, regulate. See, we, we are dysregulated or regulated. Regulated means that you can manage all the stresses you face every day within a window of tolerance, but a dysregulated state, the same stresses, you're outside of your window of tolerance and your body is under constant assault, assault. But understand that that's the case in your work you're dysregulated most of the time so your effort is always to work on regulating and calming yourself and you don't wait to the end of the day and you don't wait for saturday or the next holiday you do it intermittently several times a day and believe it or not the effectiveness and the productivity and the quality of your work will elevate you're not taking away to step away you just got to figure out how to do that strategize with each other uh, there's so much that you could tell us, and so yeah. we gotta have her back. We gotta have her back. 
<laughs> and I, my, my feeling is that just giving people the permission to recognize what's going on uh, and some of the some of the resources that you have to help them navigate through this process uh, is, this whole thing has been very meaningful have been in, around for a long time we refuse to let us think like this we refuse to let us believe that uh, the, these things were too much uh, because we were never taught to deal with it this way I think your your um, your description and your call to action is very much appreciated by our audience and we certainly will have you back uh, in a more limited discussion. We'll put all your information in the chat box uh, so that people know how to get in touch with you. Uh, and we will certainly invite you back to join us on uh, on the Wellness Watch. Thank you, Dr. Lenore, and thank you, Mr. Dean. It has really been a pleasure. You can see I get very excited about that. So it's you have really blessed my day. It's been a long day for me. So this has been a blessing for, for me as a co-host. I don't know, I'm not supposed to be for the audience, but thank you so much. You, you're going to have to take Mr. Dean offline and give him some emergency therapy. You know how to All right, thank you so much for joining us. All right, thank uh, you. I want to thank the audience for participating uh, and with Ms. Uh, Kyer. We we uh, appreciate her joining us. Now, next week, we'll be talking about everything urologic. That means we're going to talk about the kidneys, we're going to talk about the sex organs, we're going to talk about uh, you know, not being able to urinate, not being able to function, uh, talk a little bit about prostate cancer with urologist Dewad Langford will be our guest. Uh, other times, we'll have an, uh, an update on the news. So we want you to, to learn to join us uh, each week and to start uh, forming your questions early enough. Uh, we'll have our promotional stuff up there so you know what we're talking about. But this was a really a very revealing uh, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, Mr. Dean. I want people to remember that health is their biggest asset. And we'll see them next week. Thank you, Mr. Dean, for helping us get through another good podcast on Black Doctors Speak. Uh, each week we'll be here with a different topic, always timely, always transparent, always truthful, keeping it real. I'd like to thank those of you who have taken the time to, to listen to our programs and to comment on them. We hope that you will suggest topics to us and your suggestions. Remember, health is your biggest asset, so protect it. I'm Dr. Michael Lenore. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. As always, it has been a pleasure. To our fans, thank you so much for listening to the Black Doctors Speak podcast. We are a weekly show, and we are sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Black Doctors Speak, and on Twitter, at Black Docs Speak. And if you enjoyed our show, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or where ever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Stay safe.